Hello everybody, this is Jim Barton, I'm here with Reverend Abigail Conley And this is another episode of Bloody Mary Bible Brunch um, Today we are talking about the very pleasant topic of sexual violence as a metaphor that's used in the Bible um, I do want to, right at the top, um, note that we're, we're going to borrow heavily from a book called Battered Love by Renita J. Weems, um, which is a, a secondary source for really sort of um, open my eyes to this topic. I know that Abby uh, was aware of it uh, much before, but um, basically this is an examination of how several of the prophets, particularly Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Hosea, use a metaphor of sexual violence um, to explain Israel's um, disobedience towards Yahweh. So maybe, Abby, you want to just talk a little bit about sort of overarching, we'll talk about some details, but just kind of like how this metaphor is used in Scripture. Yeah, so we get this image of um, lots of prophets who are all male, who are married to a woman, and so the idea is that in some cases you take a wife and this becomes a metaphor for the entire nation of Israel, your relationship with her, when it's good, when it's bad. Um, in fact, her sexual history even plays into that. With all of the prophets, it becomes a way of saying um, Israel is unfaithful to God in the same way that a wife would be and prostitutes herself to other gods. Um, and it's this ongoing way, especially with Hosea, but throughout the prophets, of naming Israel's relationship with God. Um, because of that as well, I would say that if you have been a sex worker or if you have been a victim of sexual violence, stop listening now because it is going to be as rough as it sounds. Yeah, thank you for that trigger warning. I think that's really appropriate here. I, you know, we gave one last week or last time with the, um, our episode on rape and, and sadly this is, uh, as you say, just as, uh, just as violent. So I did want to kick off by talking about the structure of the metaphor um, does not necessarily endorse the system that it's using. So I think from an intellectual point of view, it's worth saying that um, these prophets are all starting with an understanding of a system of, of dominance and submissiveness, and they're using that to then relate it to the behavior of Israel towards God. And so I think just to be intellectually honest, we have to acknowledge that. However, as you'll see, the, um, the metaphors are so graphic that it, at times... Um, is uh, really challenging. I think, I think another point I want to make is that what I think the prophets are trying to do is they're trying to elicit a gut reaction from their listener. So they're not trying to say, they're not using a contract metaphor. You have a contract with God. You, Israel, violated this contract. Therefore, you deserve to have a punishment or you deserve to have consequences that are laid out in some sort of formal um, contractual agreement. They're using this intimate marital relationship, I think, to try and elicit something that's more gut-wrenching. It's more, you right. hurt God by what you did. Yeah, and in the world that they're writing in, where most people marry, um, it is one of the best, most accessible ways to talk about covenant. Here's the relationship that you understand is legally binding and all of these things, but it's about much, much more than that. Um, and that has been true throughout history. It's still true for us that it's legally binding, but it's also covenantal, and there are many pieces that go into that. Um, right and honoring that covenant. And so if we start off with, frankly, the tamest of them from Jeremiah 3.1, this is how Jeremiah describes it. He says, If a man divorces his wife and she leaves him and marries another, should he return to her again? Question mark. So I think, you know, that 
there we go, right out of the gate, right? This idea that, like, well, if she's... Uh, Excuse me. That's where I'm at. That's where the, the, our friend here from the Valley Metro is uh, trying to figure the same thing out. So, you know, it's like um, the idea is that... Thank you. You bet. <laughs> the idea is that, you know, you wouldn't take a woman back after she's been sullied and has had sex with somebody else. Well, I don't I don't know. Is that our norm today? I don't, I don't right. think so. I, I hope mean, not. And that's kind of the thing where it's like, if there's infidelity, is it a point in marriage? But it doesn't tell it in the marriage. Um... And that is no longer the expectation, as well as the fact that, like, we also, with that whole metaphor, we now assume women also have the power to kick the man out. Right. And in most cases, it is the woman who files for divorce in our culture, not the man. So that's a change from mm-hmm. from the, the, that. So so that part of Jeremiah, eh, maybe a little bit creeped out by. But then we get into Ezekiel, particularly in chapter 16 and 23, where now the... Israel is um, referred to as a whore and as prostituting herself to foreign nations and you know there's this imagery of like gang rape and like being paraded around naked and and I'm frankly not going to read too terribly much of it I do have a couple of passages for my own um, theory and interest I'm going to talk about but I mean generally speaking um, it's really gross it's 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 the kind of stuff that you read it and like you you know you say why is this in scripture Right. It seems over the top. It is the thing that we would not read in worship where children are present. Right. That's the level that we're talking about. Um, so I do want to mention, to give you an idea of the graphicness of this, it's this is from this is Ezekiel 16, uh, 26, and it reads, You engaged in prostitution with the Egyptians, your neighbors with large genitals, and aroused my anger, no pun intended, uh, increasing promiscuity. And then again in Ezekiel 23, uh, chapter 20, um, there she lusted after her lovers whose genitals were like those of donkeys and whose emissions were like those of horses and that's also uh, she had a prostitute with Egyptians so Egyptians have large penises mm-hmm. what we learned her Ezekiel yes now that's a little comic relief I suppose in the middle of this but like that's the level of detail that the prophet Ezekiel goes into right and this assumption that Kind of this tying of like there's sexual fulfillment happening in this other relationship. So clearly this is a way of talking about well, what are you getting from this other relationship that you aren't getting from God? Like, right, that's, from God. That's the implication of it, but it becomes this really strange graphic weirdness that we wouldn't right. talk about in polite conversation. Her clothes will be ripped off and she's going to be displayed in front of the whole public. and just, It's just... Yeah. It's and then and then eaten by dogs and all this kind of stuff that comes out. It's, it's insane. Then you get to the book of Hosea, which is even weirder, because in Hosea he marries a woman who's a prostitute, just to show. Right. It's a weird story because it's told in narrative form, as if it's describing events that have happened. Right. And then he gives kids the worst names. Like you think like Apple and Fighter Pilot are bad <laughs> names. His kids are named things like unfaithfulness and whatever like they, yeah. they, these like lists yeah. of terrible names to describe Israel which right. seems not good parenting right so okay um, the moral of the story here is so if you want read Isaiah read Ezekiel particularly 16 and 23 you, it's amazingly disgusting and horrible these metaphors right. so so I think and we need to name that explicitly so yes there is the rip the women's clothes off and put her in public to shame her it does assume that you get to beat your wife and it's just fine. It does assume that the men have control over 
divorced, and if you want to put her out, this is fine. It does assume that a woman's sexual promiscuity is a crime against her husband, not anyone else. And, and so all and of it, those things... And it, and it, and it, and it doesn't... I mean, to be very clear, sometimes in the parables, you know, we we project who God is and who Israel is, and it's like, well, that's what... In this case, it is explicit. Yeah. God is the violent husband right. in the metaphor, and that is unchallenged. And the feminine is always, in this case, a people that identify as a country, even when they're not quite a country. Yeah. Um, and it's worth noting that, you know, we still talk about countries and those things in the female yeah. in the female gender. So um, this becomes still part of the way that we talk about our world. And one of the things when we were prepping that we wanted to take time to pause on is that how much, one of the problems with this is how much sexual violence is still a problem in our society today. And, and even though... Um, I would like to think, well, we've moved past that in a lot of ways. It is illegal. It is, you know, um, it's certainly um, still a very real problem, and it's something that it's just way more common than I would like to admit. Frankly. Yeah, it is something that I guarantee you know someone who's been a victim of sexual violence or intimate partner violence. Right. And we have enough guilt and shame that we don't talk about it. Um, but that reality is true for everyone across social class. And especially if you're a woman with other female friends, you know someone who's been a victim of this sort of violence. Yeah, and, and frankly, it's woven right into the metaphor, this dominant-submissive relationship. So that's also, I think, one of the things that we've looked at this study is how damaging that idea of relationship is, that it is this dominant-submissive that's unhealthy anyway, by itself. Right. So independent of the violence, which is horrible, also, the dominant submissive stuff is, is, is problematic. Um, also, sort of just taking something about parts of the metaphor that maybe aren't totally unrelated to what they're really saying, I think it's worth noting that in the push to monotheism that the prophets are doing, it's worth noting that part of what they're doing is removing female power from the religion. Yes. Um, by removing goddesses from the relationship. So in fact, Asherah is the evil one-time consort of Yahweh who now must be written out. Take out the Asherah poles. Um, so when Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea are upset with Israel for being unfaithful, it's interesting that the way in which they're being, quote, unfaithful is by worshiping pantheons that include female deities. Mm -hmm. And now when they're pushing to monotheism, they are pushing to a monotheism with a male, with a male head. And we, Yahweh's male, fair? Yeah, Yahweh is male. One time had a female consort, again, Asherah, and so that becomes a lot of um, masculine imagery. One feminist scholar does push back on that in a significant way, um, and this is from my more conservative background, not my raging liberal uh -huh. background, um, that El Shaddai, which is the Almighty, was one time El Shaddaiim, which is the god of the breasts, or the god of the mountains, rather uh -huh. than the god yeah, yeah. of high. And so that this was a feminine image of Yahweh um, that has remained present in our text. Interesting. Yeah. And I mean, I think if you, I mean, obviously, if, you know, you can play little logic games. I mean, if God is all-powerful, mm -hmm. then God can be male or female right. by being all-powerful. But the way God is described in Scripture comes off this way. And particularly yeah. in this context, it's a little suspect that we have this 
angry violence against women metaphor at the same time as we're promoting pushing out right goddesses and sort of establishing this one male war god as the supreme being right and the only being um you know, I think one of the other things that it's worth talking about is the way that rape is used as a tool for asserting power. And, um, you know, when we look at some of the colonization, the literal colonization, where we see any, you know, we see the use of rape as a way to dominate foreign cultures, that's something else that needs to make us, we need to be upset by seeing this, the use of this metaphor in this context. Yeah. Um, all right, so what do we get out of it? So, what's the, what's the, what, what is the what is the point for us to get from this this study? So, I think we actually like many of these conversations have done some good for ourselves by naming this reality. This is part of our history. It's part of what informs our current culture. It's part of the language of the church, and like so many other languages, we continue our language problems and um, issues. We continue to be open to the work of the Spirit and say, we have to deal with this past, but we also have to work to actively recreate our future as something else and be able to say, this violence is not part of the will of God. Yeah. We're not sure it ever was, but we're definitely sure it's not part of it now. Right. You said before that this is where we take the Bible seriously, but not literally. Right. So we're going to seriously admit, we're going to acknowledge that this violence against women is a part of our DNA. It's not new. This is this comes out of the culture that we grew out of, and um, but it is something that's sinful and that we as a church have to atone for. Right, and um, rather than atone, I would say redeem because there is this idea that we can we can take evil and turn it for good, and I mean that's a story of God at work. So we who understand ourselves as co-workers with God continue to look and say, what evil can we take and turn for good? Um, and one of the things that matters is that we don't become complicit in violence. When you talk about this church at large, we have been complicit in violence against women over and over again. Right. Um, and, so that's and an easy extent, starting place. With the, with the purity culture, and maybe even are responsible for some of it, right? Attaching some of the shame and keeping things secret. Frankly, the church bears responsibility for that. Right. The church bears responsibility for that. It also bears responsibility for not talking with the men and participants about this is not okay relationship. If you go to a women's dormitory, you will find signs on the back of every stall about what to do if you are being abused, what help members to call. You don't see those in churches. You probably should. Yeah. Those sorts of things to just actively say, we're not that place. Yeah. Um, and the same way with, I think, how we train our pastors. Um, one of the trainings that I've received is exactly how to respond to intimate partner violence. One of the things that police will tell you is call us, do not try to do it yourself. Um, because the reasons most people die when they re-enter a relationship, they go back to the house to get something they wanted and their partner is waiting and kills them. Wow. And so that's one of those things where it's like, okay, our pastor's talking about that, the women are, I don't know if the men are. Yeah. Um, and those are all things that we undo this expectation um, and work around the shame and guilt of, I've been a victim of violence. Um, right. And this is why my marriage ended and those sorts of things. 
well, all right. So I think this is that's pretty good. Um, I don't know that that's what Jeremiah or Hosea or Ezekiel wanted us to get out of it, but I think it is what we get out of it, which is there's a lot of work to do, and uh, we as a church need to do it. All right, well, I think that'll wrap up this episode of Bloody Mary Bible Brunch. Until next time, cheers. <laughs>